0: All right, I, I need a deacon to come up out of the overflow of all that God has given to me. I want to make this sacrificial and sizable gift that the kingdom of God may be expanded and that the needs of the hurting and the suffering may be alleviated. Thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to give. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew, chapter 6, as we read verses 1 through 18, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount where we left off. Our Lord Jesus speaks thus. They have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Jesus, for setting before us the proper motivations that we should have in our practices of piety and devotion. Grant, O God, that your spirit would purge from our hearts The desire to be lauded by men rather than by God. Grant that we would rightly see and discern and rightly prioritize. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. Okay, I hope you know me well enough to know that that little shenanigan we did was staged. Okay, uh, we I worked it out with the deacons beforehand that we would do that because I wanted to illustrate a point, not a point of what we should do, but a point of what we should not do. All right, and I hope you saw the immediate juxtaposition or contradiction of the the way I went about announcing my gift with what we read here. In Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing the section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is elucidating the concept of what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes were not regarded as villains by the contemporaries of their day. No, they were the the theological heavy hitters. And so what we see back in Matthew 5, 17 to 20 is the great thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. And then in verses 21 through 48, that is the remainder of chapter 5, what Jesus reveals is that his Followers are to have a deeper understanding of the law that goes beyond the mere letter but seeks out the intent, and it results in a higher standard of righteousness, a higher standard of obedience. Many people mistakenly believe that in the new covenant, in the New Testament era, that we have A lowered bar set before us. In fact, Jesus has amped up the requirements for his people. We are to be holy. We are to be a light. We are to be salt. A higher standard. Every person wants to, says they want to belong to a group that has a higher standard than the other you know, the other folks around them, the other riffraff, right? So, you know, my, my background is, is in the military, and you have, you know, those, those riffraff soldiers that you don't want to be around them. You want to you show that you are tough. And so you try out, and you, and you go to one of the elite units where the standards are higher because you want to demonstrate that you are excellent by surrounding yourself with excellence, you don't want to go to switch metaphors. You don't want to go to the community college. You want to go to the Ivy League institution. I'm not saying you really do. I'm just saying we want to be known and, and, and recognized for excellence. And so, back in the military, you would go out for a unit or a, or a an elite assignment that carried with it a higher standard. Humans like to know what the standard is so that we can then compare ourselves with it and rack and stack the ordering of others around us. We like that social hierarchy and pecking order that comes with having all that knowledge, which is why uh, if, if, if you ever know anybody who tries out for special forces, they, here's the little, here's the little uh, wrench they throw into the works. When people are trying out for special forces, there is a standard, they just don't tell them what it is. Their goal is to see if the person is so innately driven to be successful that they will give their all and is their all really sufficient to meet the standard that the people know nothing about. So in any other unit, even the rangers that I was a part of, you're going to go run five miles and you better run it in less than 40 minutes. Okay, that's the Ranger standard, and, and the Special Forces. You're going to go run, uh, you know, ten miles. Hope you finish in time. And and do you do you or do you not? Now, when it comes to the religion world, we all like to be associated with with excellence, and so. Public displays of piety are common in the religion world. Uh, the late atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens he 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 decried as he surveyed the global religions all, all of the ho- hypocrisy and grandstanding not just in Christian religion, but in all religions. And so he wrote his his infamous book, God is Not Great, which was a mockery of of the Islamic statement that God is great. But he, he saw the religious hypocrisy. People like grandstanding. They like being known as more tough, more elite, more serious, more committed than the guys around them. And in the religion world, sadly, sadly, if the shoe fits, we've got to wear it, we are prone to the kind of grandstanding that the Pharisees are here indicted for. Now, I think Jesus is using some hyperbole. Um, it is true that at certain times of the year, they would have literal horns uh, available at festivals. But 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 he's using hyperbole to draw to the fact that they would make grand spectacles to draw attention to their acts of public piety. These three acts that are listed here, almsgiving, which was giving specifically to help the poor, uh, praying, the public praying that they would do, and fasting. Fasting was something that was a part of... uh, Second Temple Judaism, all these things were part of the social fabric and were done in public. And so the Pharisees wouldn't just do them in public. They would do them in public as spectacles to be seen by the people. And what Matthew wants us to understand here in verses 1 through 18 is as he's continuing to develop this idea of what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, just as in the previous section, verses 21 to 48 of chapter five, where we see that there's a higher standard of obedience. In chapter six, verses one to 18, we see that there's a rightly motivated acts of devotion. So compared to the Way the Pharisees had ordered public expressions of faith, Jesus teaches us in contrast to it. There's a formula in each one, so we're not gonna go through each one in depth. But in each of the three examples given, of almsgiving, of praying, and of fasting, the formula begins, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, okay? When you do this action, Do not be like the hypocrites. And the word hypocrite there is used, he he doesn't specifically name in this context the Pharisees. Okay? He doesn't. But the actions and behaviors that are described here are exactly the same as, fast forward into chapter 23, where he does name the Pharisees six times as hypocrites. So, Contextually, he's most likely he's referring to the Pharisees and those who want to curry their favor, which is practically everybody. Everyone wants to be in the good graces of the cool kids. Okay? But don't be like the hypocrites. Nobody likes a hypocrite. But what is a hypocrite? Well, there there are two ways the term is used. One, the one that's, the one that's most detestable and we, and we hate the most is when someone uh, preaches one thing and then does the opposite. You know, I'm preaching about, about modesty, I'm preaching about a personal sacrifice, I'm preaching about sexual morality, but I'm back there, you know, living ridiculous uh, sleeping around, Th- those kinds of gross oppositional things where I'm preaching one thing and doing another thing like that, that is detestable. But the word hypocrite in our culture has always negative connotations. And it does here too. But understand that hypocrite was just, eh, it was just the, it's basically an Anglicization of the Greek word for actor. And in the in the early in ancient Greece, actors they didn't have all the prosthetics that we have nowadays. They would just wear sim they would wear masks, and hypocrite uh, simply means speaker from underneath, and it would simply re- refer to the fact that the actor would wear a mask, but then he would speak from underneath it. He was pretending in character to be something that he's not, and so hypocrites. In this sense that Jesus is using here, they're people who are pretending to have virtues that they don't really possess. They're pretending to have virtues that they don't really possess. Understand that in no case does Jesus say, don't give alms. In no case does Jesus say, don't pray. In no case does Jesus say, don't fast. What he tells us is how not to do those things, and then rightly, how to do them. Throughout these 18 verses, one of the recurring themes, the major recurring theme, I would say, that keeps coming up again is the strong human desire to be recognized. We want recognition. We, we hate feeling overlooked. We hate Feeling like we don't matter. We hate feeling like what we're doing is of no consequence and no one would even notice if we're gone. And I want you to understand Jesus doesn't blast you for that. The desire to be recognized is nowhere here demonized. Nowhere. Okay, you matter. And what you do matters. You matter. I need you to really hear that. But the question here is whose recognition are you primarily seeking when you do these acts of piety which we are called to do? Whose recognition? There are two facts about God that are are in verse 1 through 18, that are in this section, that matter, that should motivate us to seek his recognition principally. The first is spelled out multiple times, at least once, per example, is that he sees. Let that sink in for a moment. There, There is no sacrifice you make There is no suffering you endure. There is no righteousness that you observe that goes unnoticed by your heavenly Father. He sees, but he doesn't just see the act. His eyes, his gaze pierces into even the inner motivations. He's aware. But the second thing about God that should underscore a motivation for true piety is that in every case, it says it right here. Check it out multiple times. Our God rewards. Our Father is not a stingy old curmudgeon who just tells you to be good for goodness sake. Our God is a gracious father who has promised us an inheritance with his son. That you will literally reign with Christ. The word of God says that you will judge angels. Fathom that. I can't even conceptualize what it would look like to sit in judgment of angels. So what we have is a God for whom nothing is unnoticed and a God simultaneously who has promised a great, great reward. And now what you have to do then in the middle of it all is pile up all the accolades, the, the merit and the worth and the value of all the, the reward, all the benefit you could possibly receive from your human peers around you and put that on the scales. Eternity, the weight of glory, judging the angels, reigning with Christ, pat on the back and maybe a building named after you. That'll crumble or be scrubbed off as soon as your views are found to be out of accord with whatever the fad is at the time. What will it be? Well, Jesus, he teaches us that a true disciple who possesses the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, a true disciple, is animated in view of the fact that they serve an audience of one. They're principally concerned with pleasing and communing, and magnifying their Father who is in heaven, who has withheld nothing from them, who promises them everything. We are indeed called to seek first the kingdom and then worry about everything else. Now understand, don't Jesus has just said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that, that we are to let our light shine before men, that, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Um, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, you know, when there's needs to be met, the, 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 the Christians would sell their possessions, those who felt so inclined, and they would lay the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, And you have numerous statements in the Pauline epistles that you should imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay, understand that Jesus is not saying that you truly must do all your public acts of piety, no more in public, only in private, to never be seen by another human. That is not what he's saying. What he's addressing is not good deeds done in public. He's rebuking displays of piety in public for the fanfare of man. Look at each each instance here. I'm just going to do the first for, for brevity's sake. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the, sin, as the hypocrites do. That purpose purpose word, that they may be praised by others. So it is... It's okay, good, and right that we are godly in public. But it's not good if what our heart is doing it for is so that we can receive the accolades of those around us. And so at the beginning of this message, before I began, I made a a ridiculous display of ostentatious, you know, whatever. Um, And I want to say that I think a good thing about our church is I've been here, I'm in my fifth year, and and I've never overheard and I've never had someone come and and try to drop a little uh, impressive note about how much they give. We have a very generous church, but I've never seen or I've never experienced someone here in any way trying to draw attention to what they give. And and that's glorious and, and praise God for that. But check your heart when we give, when we pray, when we fast, when we come to our worship service and and we want to engage in in, in, and demonstrations of our uh, commitment to the Lord and zeal for the Lord, when we show up in our attire, who are we trying to impress? When we do or don't go to events and activities, who are we trying to impress? It all comes back to right motivation. There's nothing, nothing wrong with these acts of piety, and Jesus commends them. In every case, what is your motivation? And so the Lord's Prayer here in this section on prayer, the middle section of the three, is by far the longest And the Lord's Prayer was right there in the middle of the section on prayer. And as you probably know, there's six petitions to the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions are related to God's glory, and the second three are related to the fulfillment of our needs. But in teaching us to pray, what's happening is he's teaching us the right orientation of a life, and so the if you notice, when you look at these petitions, we see that, that whether it's our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is, may your name be regarded as holy. May your reputation be enhanced. Thy kingdom come. That is, may his governance be enacted on earth. Thy will be done. That is, may... Piety rule the land. In every case, they're basically variations of a singular desire, are they not? Promoting God's reputation, advancing God's rule, and performing God's will are simply an expression of a singular desire for God to be glorified on earth, in my life, in your life even as the angels in heaven are glorifying God now in Revelation 4 and 5. And then the petitions for our needs. Look what he's he's praised for. There's daily sustenance, forgiveness of sins, and the avoidance of sin and evil. And then he follows it up with a warning about not forgiving others of their sins. And and that warning is kind of a summary. It's a warning not to ask for our needs to be met in possession of a spirit that is not willing to meet the needs of others. The higher standard to which we are called is to be radically others-centered, whether it's serving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or, or our neighbor as ourself, and that expresses itself in a piety where our concern is principally the glorification of God on earth. And as such, He is the one I'm seeking to please with my acts of piety. Yes, people may get the benefit, the poor may get the benefit when I give, but I'm not doing it so I can hear them praise my name, etc. etc. In Christ, we have a Redeemer who has gone to the cross to pay the debt of sin that we could never repay. As the Beatitudes remind us, we are broken spirited. We are poor of spirited because we know we, we cannot satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. And, and we are humble. We don't stand proudly before God as if we actually have a leg to stand on. And, and we hunger and we thirst for righteousness because we can't be righteous in and of ourselves. And He, the great shepherd of the flock, feeds His sheep. He gives us the thing which he commands. And so we, in response then to having received grace, are called to be instruments and vessels of grace. And so in the world, let us seek to magnify the Lord, knowing that no deed of ours goes unnoticed. And every good deed will be rewarded. And consider to be of greater consequence by far, the accolades of our Father rather than the accolades of men. That is the key to true piety. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this passage. Grant that with a single-minded devotion to you, the glorification of your name, that we would seek to live lives that reflect back to you the gratitude for the grace we have received. Help us to remember in times of stress or strain that you see all and no good deed will go unnoticed. Grant that our piety would not be done in some sort of way to merit favor but would simply be an expression of joy at having been forgiven so much. We ask you, God, that you would be with us all the days of our lives. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.